when you're on set, there's a lot of voices and noise that are trying to tell you, hey, do it the easier way, or hey, you've spent enough time on this. And sometimes you need to know when to listen to those voices, but there's other times where you need to fight. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In today's episode, a psychiatrist takes an unexpected journey into the surreal in director Parker Finn's horror film, Smile. The film follows Dr. Rose Cotter, who after witnessing the bizarre suicide of a patient, goes through increasingly disturbing and daunting experiences, leading her to believe what she is experiencing is supernatural. Smile is Finn's feature directorial debut. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Finn shares insight into the making of Smile with fellow director Zach Kreger. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Thank really you. quick, before we get into all the all the you know the bullshit and the nuts and the bolts, and I'm going to ask all the all the stuff. But like, how's it felt for you in the last last two weeks that this thing's been out? Has it been? How's your mental state? <laughs> well, I don't know how my mental state is normally. So, um, but no, I it's been surreal. I mean, it's been uh, like a dream come true. I just you know never in my wildest expectations um, that I anticipate that like all of this would have happened. So it's been awesome. It's so awesome. And it, it's so cool for me to, to, to watch this because we have like had sort of the similar experience. You, your movies blown mine out of the water financially. So that's, you know, <laughs> bullshit, but uh, no, no, that's fucking <laughs> awesome. But like we both made movies that were supposed to, you know, and my, my dream of dreams was be on shutter or something like that. And I know you made yours with the, what, tell me about it. What was the intention when you first got this thing greenlit? What was the plan? Yeah, so we were greenlit for Paramount Plus. That Paramount was Plus. that was the initial straight to plan. streaming. Yeah, so the the whole like kit and caboodle was aimed towards that. Um, and you know, we got back. I mean, you know, we budgeted, scheduled all of that stuff for that. And then when we got back and we got into post. You know, all of the early conversations were were the whole timeline. Everything was about. Paramount Plus. Right. And then what happened? We had that first test screening at like 13 weeks in the post, um, which was, I don't know if like anybody, like I'm assuming some, like a lot of you have done a test screening. It's hard to gauge how many in this audience, but um, like test screenings, it was my first time through the process. It's incredibly nerve wracking. You know, you feel like the movie at 12 or 13 weeks is being held together by scotch tape and you have no idea like what's going to happen. But we, we played it at the, it was at the Burbank AMC at like a packed house, 270 people. And, um, it was just this wild thing where the, the audience was like screaming at the screen during the, the test screening, like in a really good, like good way. Like they were, yeah. they seemed to be really interacting with the movie and the movie seemed to cast some kind of spell on them. And we go out to the lobby afterwards and the research team comes over and they're like, Hey guys, like this, movie like this the scores are like really high like not they're 
really high for any genre, but they're very, very, very high for horror. Because horror is like usually scores 10 points less than other genres. Like yeah. That's what they say. They're like, add 10 to whatever you get. And that's how we think of it. And literally, they movie. told me that ahead of time. The research yeah. people, they like warned me. They're like, and they also said, you know, movies with uh, an ending like yours drop like another 10 points. Uh, so add 20. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, 119. So, so going into that first, they're like, don't worry when, you know, it like the, when the audience hates it, that's okay. And I was like, oh, great. Fantastic. <laughs> Can't wait for that. You know, they, they, I mean, they really only care about those top two boxes, obviously. Like that's, that's what really matters, but they, they have all the other stuff that they ask on the cards. We got in this like Zoom the next day and they've, you know, the research team has like done a whole presentation based upon it. And um, we find out like last second, they're like, hey, Brian Robbins is going to jump on the Zoom. And, uh, you know, Brian gets on and I hadn't met him at that point and he had the numbers in his hand. And For people who don't know, that is... He's the uh, the big head honcho over at Paramount. Okay, and he was like, "This is these are really fantastic numbers. I want to put this same cut back into a theater immediately." And he wanted the you know heads of marketing, distribution, and advertising to come watch it with an audience. So we retested the same cut a couple of days later, which felt very much like tempting fate twice. I know. It's like <laughs> you, you just had this like perfect dice roll. It's like, yeah. why do it again? Yeah. yeah. And and so we, we went out to Santa Monica and did the same thing and somehow score went up a couple of points after that. I mean, it was very close to the same score, but, um, you know, we got a whole second round of, of data points. And then the next thing I know, I hear that like, there's all these screenings of the movie happening on the lot, like the, the next week or so. And all of these meetings are happening. And, um, you know, I just had to spend the next couple of weeks, like trying not to, to get my hopes up as like whispers started coming through that, that, you know, suddenly the studio was reconsidering how they might release the movie. Um, and then, uh, you know, we got, we got the phone call and we went into, uh, you know, Mark Weinstock's office, who's the head of marketing. And, um, he, he was very excited to break the news to us that they decided they were going to go full theatrical release with it. Amazing. Yeah. That's awesome. That's great. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, this is some of the most effective jump scares I've ever seen in a movie. I, I, I was at the Arrow screening and there was one in particular that like, I, I'm, I don't think of myself as a particularly like scarable dude, but I full on like my butt left the seat. My arms like kind of spasmed. <laughs> I was vocal and it was the, and I saw so what I'd love to do is just dive into that scare. And I want you to talk to me about like how you got the idea, how you wrote it, how you shot it, how you cut it. And, and I want to, I want to just go through it. Is that cool? Yeah. The scare I'm talking about is the computer scare, right? Where she's like looking at the sound waves and she's leaning it. I mean, that got me. And I think if I'd read that scare, I probably, and I don't mean this to be insulting, but I probably been like, okay, you know, I don't think I would have given it the respect that it deserved if I just read it. So talk to me, like, did you know that you had a banger as you were writing it? Like, did you, did you think of it in your head as you're typing it? I'm assuming in your house or wherever you are, was the idea that you had as you're writing it similar to what's on the screen? Yeah, it's, it's. Very close. Um, so when when I was writing it, um, you know the the idea because it, it at that point in the film it's the it's like the first scare of that kind where it it's like right there in your face and I and I knew that like you know because that's a little bit of a, a turning point in the movie that you've been watching thus far. 
you know, it, it's actually really close on the page to what it was on screen. There's actually, um, I had, you know, I don't tend to be, when, when I'm writing, I try to be very, um, I just want to tell a story. I don't like to get like too fancy with, with how things look on the page, but I did actually in that little one have a little fun with it. And there was this whole thing of with like the, <laughs> you know, the whisper that's happening. I actually changed the size of the font and made it very small where you had to like almost squint to look at what was being I love that. Said. Dude. Oh my uh, God. Over and over. And then when the thing appears right next to her, I made the font much bigger. Yeah. And, and, you know, so, so hopefully it would have. Now everybody's going to do that in their script. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it felt like people like understood like what the idea like was behind that scene. But I do remember, so we shot, that was our, during our first week because we, all the first stuff we shot was at uh, Rose's house. Um, that was like how we were scheduled. And, um, I remember we were shooting that and, um, I, it's, you know, it's a good sign when people are watching from monitor and like the crew jumps, um, <laughs> which happened. Wait a minute. Is she screaming like on set? Is it? Is oh yeah. Because Sosie, who is amazing and put herself through just the, you know, the most really intense things to this movie told Dora, who is the one who is, screaming, uh -huh. she was like, I want you to scream in my face. Oh God. Yeah. And you know, I think we, we had time for like two takes of that. And, um, I remember the, on the very first take I f like, cause I'm so focused on monitor trying to get it right. And I just like the moment that happened, I felt everyone around me jump and I was like, Oh wow. Like that mm -hmm. seemed to hit with a lot of impact. But when we got into the edit, uh, my editor, Elliot Greenberg and I, you know, th the real challenge was building the, the right amount of tension and like how I, I hate doing stuff. No, with but it's screens, all in the edit, right? It's yeah. so, it's so in the edit. Wait, keep going, keep going. Well, so we, you know, we were, we kept experimenting with like, you know, how much back and forth, how many times she was going to rewind all that kind of stuff. I mean, it ended up being, you know, pretty close. But what's funny also is the recording, you know, that, that recording is what it's from what we shot. Right. But we didn't shoot that yet. Like that we shot way later in the schedule. Yeah. So I, my first AD is off to the side, like reading the lines that are in the script and we're, you know, which that ended up being close, but like what Rose is listening to ended up changing a little bit in the edit. And so it, it was about figuring out like how much back and forth to really draw people in. And then, and then, oh, and then the other thing I didn't even mention is like, we experimented with different versions of the whisper too. Like that, like had a whole evolution of figuring out. Cause like early on, it was a lot more like clear. And then we kept being like, well, let's obscure it more and more and like make it like you could miss it if you're not really paying attention. Right. Uh, Cause we wanted people to hopefully like in their seats be like, what, like what, and like they leaning did. forward. They did. And I did because you know what I was thinking? A part of my brain when I'm watching that before the scare is I'm, I'm listening to them kind of like boost the volume on that little thing. And part of me is thinking like, don't do that thing Parker that like remember in the CIA scenes in the 90s they'll be like enhance and then suddenly the like screen blows up and there's like information on the digital image that's like that wasn't there we know that's not how computers work don't put a new thing in now and I thought you're gonna do that with the audio but you didn't which I was like okay he respects our intelligence but I was like I was so engaged by like the the machinery of what they were doing or what she was doing in that moment that you really did have me right where you wanted me I was not expecting what happened and then I saw a clip online 
where she leans back and that woman's face is there. And I had like, I think it was my computer was muted or something like that. And it wasn't even how I remembered it in the theater, which is like another sign of like how effective it is where it's like, she was kind of there for a solid beat before she screams. Well, Am I misremembering this? Or no, no. So what, so what you're actually seeing is a difference in the marketing and what's in the movie. Oh, I fucking hate that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, if it gets butts and seats, I guess, uh, whatever. But Well, yeah. I mean, listen, if it was up to me, you know, there would be none of the scares would be in the marketing, but that's sure, also sure. why I'm not a professional marketer because like, I don't know what I'm talking about. It's a fine line. It's a fine totally. line of like what to spoil to attract people versus what to protect for the experience. I yeah. understand that. Yeah. It was, it, but anyways, that whole sequence just to sort of like sum that up, it was just a, a game of like, can I, can I make the audience think that I'm leading them down one path and then just sort of like hit them with something totally different at the end of it. Okay. So do you know exactly where you're going to put the camera? I mean, do you like story, like for that scare, like, do you know, like, I'm going to be, you know, in, locked in her POV on the on the screen. I'm going to be on a reverse on her face. And then I'm going to be on the side for the jump. And that's always kind of a, a roll of the dice when you're in a new angle for the jump scare, right? Because mm-hmm. now people are like, are locked into something new and they're they're on guard all, all over again because the camera is in a new spot. Am yeah. I, well, so, we do start at that side, right? So it's a, what it is, it's a return to a place that, that we we've been before. So we we don't feel totally un, like naked here. Yes, okay. exactly. Cause the, the whole time that she's listening for the most part, it's there. And then we start to lock in between her eyes and the, the, what she's looking at on screen. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, you know, like overall I, I sort of, um, I obsess over shot listing, you know, like once the, the script is written, um, you know, myself and my DP, we spend a ton of time shot listing. And, and, you know, even when I write, I write a lot of shots into the script because I just, you know, I'm, I'm not somebody who really, um, is interested in like standard coverage. And, you know, I kind of love being able to create one bespoke shot leading into the next. So, you know, I, I find it very useful. It's the way I think about scenes um, is in shots, you know, that the execution of them. So, so that's all shot listed uh, well ahead of time. Sometimes that involves doing things like with my phone camera. If, if it's like a comp, like a technical thing like mm-hmm. this, you know, then, then sometimes there'll be like a little bit of that. I, I don't, I only storyboard if I feel like it's for something where a lot of departments have to contribute to it and I want everybody to make sure they're on the same page because, you know, sometimes from the script things can be a little confusing. But I I don't find storyboarding particularly useful for myself as much as it is to like occasionally like get an idea across to, to a lot of departments at once. Is that because you just have such a clear cut, like you already know in your mind, so you don't need the storyboards or is it because you want to be agile? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, the storyboard is like not good at like capturing what the feeling of the shot is. I don't think as well as like the shot list is just as helpful and doesn't take as long and, and isn't as tedious as, as storyboarding, at least in, in my opinion, that might change if I get into more technical filmmaking down, down the way. But so far, um, I just find that like really, really, uh, specific, like well-written out shot lists have been much more helpful. So when you're doing the shot listing with your DP, are you just like in an office with like a dry erase board and just kind of talking it through like that? Or are you, yeah, I mean, we do a lot of acting stuff out, blocking Uh it ourselves. Um, I mean, a lot of it starts with like, I go into a lot of this, um, even from like the writing stage, knowing how I want to shoot it. And there's always stuff to figure out, of course. And then he's got this like really great mind and great eye, but, um, you know, it's that, it's that back and forth becomes, really, really helpful. But like, there are certain shots in this film that like, you know, they exist in the, sh- in the script and that's how they ended up 
on screen. And I love building sets. We built both the interior of the hospital um, and her childhood home. I would have built everything, but we definitely didn't have the budget for that. But I love that because then you can build around how you want to shoot the, the film, which to me, that's sort of a dream. Whereas having to sort of like take the shot list you created and then like retrofit it into a location, which works too, but yeah. Um, talk to me about the creature design. I know you worked with like a designer that you, that you really have been interested in for a long time. Am I right about that? Yeah. So, um, the, you know, we basically, so you're talking about like the final, final, I mean, if we can get into spoiler, I mean, I I don't feel like this is like, this is a spoiler podcast. We'll just, yeah, let's spoil it. Okay. Okay. So big monster, the the final one. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. The final one. So that started, um, again, like the, the big money shot of that was, um, something that was written into the script that way, that like tableau. You know, it started with like, I, I am a very like rudimentary artist and I had drawn my own little version of that. But then I passed it along to this, this concept artist named Vincent Prose, who's amazing. He's worked on tons of amazing stuff. Um, and he like, you know, took these ideas I had and like turned it into a piece of art. But what was really important was about like how we were going to frame it and what exactly was happening on, on screen with, you know, Rose's mouth and this, this monster and, and it's many mouth like that, that whole reveal, you know, I knew from the beginning that I wanted to do, I love practical effects. I wanted to do as much practical in the film as I possibly could. That was a kind of a big upward uphill battle, uh, especially when everyone was looking at us as a streaming movie. They were like, Parker, you're out of your mind. Um, that's just not how it's done anymore. And, uh, you know, but it was something I fought very hard for and to Paramount's credits, um, they, they got behind me eventually. <laughs> and, um, so we were able to bring on studio ADI and work with, uh, Tom Woodruff Jr. and Alec Gillis and their team. And those guys are like legends. I mean, they worked with Stan Winston to build the alien queen and aliens and a bunch of other stuff. I think like when we first reached out to them, they were like, what is your budget? We told them and they were like, yeah, we're n- not a chance. And I was like, okay, just somebody get me on a zoom with them. And, um, I remember getting on with, with Tom and, uh, we just spent like two hours geeking out about practical effects and I was trying to explain to him about like how, like so much of the stuff they had worked on had like shaped my childhood. And, um, you know, we got off of that, that zoom and, uh, they went away and crunched some numbers and came back and they're like, yeah, we're going to make it work. Uh, which was like amazing. And, and it was so cool. They were like, rock stars, you know, to, to even have on set. But we shot that, that big monster like last because we needed all of that, right. It was like that in the fire, which was also practical. Um, we needed all that runway, uh, in order to get it prepped for that. So I didn't get to see, I mean, they were working in their shop in LA. We were shooting out in New Jersey. We were getting on, you know, calls and zooms and trading emails back and forth. Um, but I didn't get to see that thing in the flesh until like a I think the day before we oh shot it. Oh my God. Yeah, which was wild. But, you know, they took the concept art and the ideas and all that stuff and like they're amazing artists in their own right. So they filtered it through their own eye of how they see monsters. And um, so the end result is this like amalgamation of, you know, myself, this concept artist and uh, Tom and Alec and their team. God, it's amazing. They did, they did amazing. It's, it's a great one. Um, talk about the music. Um, yeah. how'd, you fi- how'd you find your composer? I know the story, but, but, uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, Cristobal Tapia de Vere, uh, he is, he's been one of my favorite modern composers, uh, for years now. What um, had he done that you'd love? So I remember the first time I watched the, uh, the British series Utopia and I was like, oh my God, who did the music for this? I need to, you know, 
worship at the altar of this person. And I, you know, discovered him and, and well, discovered him for myself um, and just tracked his career for years, listening to everything that he had been making. And um, so when it came time to, you know, you get greenlit and they send you around to meet all the different departments of the studio. And I met with the music department and I was like, listen, there's like a very small handful of composers who you know, I want to go to, and I sort of have them in a list order that I want to go to them in. And, uh, Christo was right at the top of my list. And, um, we sent him the script. Um, and by the way, I had also been, he had done, um, part of, uh, third summer, which is on HBO is a miniseries starring Jude Law. It's very cool. If you guys haven't seen it, um, he, he did some of like half of the music for that, which is awesome. I've been listening to a lot of that while I was writing the script. Anyways, sent him the script and we get on a Zoom after the weekend because he read it over the weekend and uh, right away it was clear that like he had been looking for a project like this and, and we, were, we were very much seeing eye to eye about what we wanted this soundscape to be. And he lives in this like two-story refurbished barn uh, like an hour outside of Montreal, like in the woods, like a madman. Uh, and he like connects by satellite. So if there was like a storm, you know, there's like, he'd be like, oh, I guess like we'll connect again when the storm goes away. But, you know, we just started talking and he, at the time, he's like, hey, I'm about to turn in uh, this project that I'm working on uh, to HBO and then I'm going to be free and clear. And that was The White Lotus. And so... You know, he finished that. The White Lotus came out. Everybody started talking about it. We had signed him on. Paramount suddenly was like, oh my God, we got the White Lotus guy. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, but I had asked and, and I was like, can we please bring him on like early? I want him on from, you know, bef- before we even start shooting. And, uh, and they agreed to that. And so he started writing music just off of the script and uh, which was incredible. And he, he like does everything by hand. So he'll like modify or build instruments, record them all analog and then bring it all into a computer and, and, you know, create the, you know, the alchemy that he does. And, um, and so by time we got into production, he was like sending me like noises and sounds and, and we'd, t- we'd spent, we'd trade a lot of references, but we talked a lot about like sort of these, these big, ideas that he like filtered through like we talked about things like the idea of like laughter and like what would it sound like if like you know the the music was like a character and like sometimes you know could it be like the evil in the film sometimes is it representing rose but like how it how is it blending those two things and um you know he he filtered all these these really difficult ideas and and created this amazing thing and and you know, by time we got to the assembly, we had like 50% of the music was oh, his. I mean, I'm so envious of that process. And that's what I want to do, uh, if, you know, in, in the future, because you never have to deal with temp love, you know, and yeah. that like, I, you know, I, I did temp for my first cut and I got married to it in my mind. And then it's like this painful process of divorcing yourself from the temp that has worked and that you can't now think of the scene any other way, but to start at the beginning with somebody who's giving you the music that is yours and you can just, ah, oh, dude, what a, what a gift. That yeah. is awesome. And, he, and he's, you know, he's so singular in what he does, which was really important to me because I wanted the, the music to feel like its own character in the film. And I wanted to avoid anything that felt like obvious, like horror tropes when it comes to score. And I didn't, you know, I, I wanted it to just it just I lean into this whole like weird off kilter nightmare that I that I was hoping the whole film might feel like. Yeah, it was an excellent score. It was it was truly fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, 
Okay, Sosie, how did you find your your Rose? I mean, was this uh, what did what did you seen her in that you that you were like this is it? So the thing I had just watched uh, right when we were starting to talk about casting Rose was um, Mare of Easttown, and mm. she, you know, the the level of commitment she put into um, that show. I don't know how many of you have seen it. It's fantastic if you haven't seen it. It's worth the watch for sure. So Sosie plays a very difficult role in that show. It's a, you know, an ex-drug addict who is totally set up to be a kind of a, a heel to Kate Winslet's character who, who we're very much attached in the show. And yet she brings so much humanity to it. Like the moment you first meet her, you're like, oh, I'm going to hate this character. And then you continue to watch you're like, oh my God, like I empathize so much with this character and, and it was so human and, and it needed to go to like extreme places, but also be very grounded. And she's honestly only in, I don't know, maybe 10 scenes in that whole show, but the level of impact it had was huge. And so it was very fresh on my brain. And, um, you know, so we had the idea to, to send the script to her uh, and we'd send it to a, to you know, a lot of different actors. Um, but when I met with, with Sosi, you know, she was, it was so clear, like the way that she thought about character and, and the things she was interested in, in doing as a performer were right in line with, with what this role was going to require. Cause it's a super, super difficult role. I mean, the, the places she has to go are incredibly intense, but what was so important was her ability to draw an audience in and really get them to connect with and empathize with the character and ground the character in reality so that you believe that character so that when she then goes on this really extraordinary ride, you go with her. And then, and that's like, we had, we had a, you know, a, a really, you know, tight shoot. She's in pretty much every scene. You know, our, our entire schedule was built basically around her turnaround and she's operating at these extreme levels of anxiety and stress and, and fear and, you know, grief. And, and when you're performing, you know, your body doesn't know the difference. So like, she's really putting herself through all of that and, and, you know, you know, was intensely exhausting. And, and I am so, blown away and proud of, of her performance. Yeah. Yeah. She did a great job. Okay. I only got time for one more. Um, moving forwards, I'm sure you're going to make a bunch of other movies. What is a lesson from this, your first, you know, big movie? Like what, what's a lesson you're going to take from making smile into your next project? You know, I think one of the things that, I mean, this was my first feature, so I learned an enormous amount on it. Um, you know, one of the things was that, you know, when you're, and, and you know this, and I think all the directors in this room know this, when you're on set, um, there's a lot of voices and noise that are trying to tell you like, hey, do it the easier way, or hey, you've spent enough time on this, or hey, like, you should move on, you've got it, all that kind of stuff. And sometimes you need to know when to listen to those voices, but there's other times where, you know, you need to fight for things and you need to stick to your guns and you need to not let yourself or other people off the hook just because it's easy during production because, you know, we, we fought for a lot of this myself and my collaborators, you know, we, we sort of locked arms and, and decided that like we wanted to keep our, our ambition high in the face of, you know, of 
really difficult shooting circumstances with, you know, in the grand scheme of things, um, you know, not the most resources in the world. I mean, I'm very, very lucky and grateful for what I got for my, my first film. I mean, that's incredible. And I, you know, a filmmaker should be so lucky to get what I got, but, um, you know, that learning to really fight for the things that are super important and to not just let go of them because it's the easier thing to do. That was a big lesson for me. And, uh, and that's something I'll definitely keep with me going forward. Well put. Dude, congratulations. Terrifying movie. You should be very, very proud. Hey, thank you very much. Right, uh, and, and congrats to Zach. If you guys have not seen Barbarian, it's amazing. You should definitely go check it out. One of the best films of the year. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. 